Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Remember, you can support the podcast by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles. You'll get extended episodes, you'll get bonus series, you'll get access to things that people who aren't Patreons don't. And most importantly, you uh, will help keep the podcast running and all the other stuff that we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. This episode is a special episode, a book shambles, science shambles crossover, and basically one of the only live events we have done in 2021 so far. This was recorded as part of the Cosmic Shambles Network takeover of the Speakeasy at the Latitude Festival at the end of July. Science Shambles co-host with Robin, Helen Chersky, was the host of for that event and therefore this episode and she is talking to Professor Dan Davis about his new book The Secret Body. Both Helen and Dan will be at Nine Less Than the Carols for Curious People this December back live on stage December 10, 11, uh, 17 and 18. Forgot the dates there, that was helpful. Uh, there's also a matinee on December 11 at King's Place in London. Tickets on sale now, cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons. All profits to charity, as always. So go and have a look at that. Next week, we'll be back with a normal Robin and Josie episode, but we hope you enjoyed this special episode from Latitude. Here is Helen and Dan. Hello, everybody in the tent who is sitting a long way back from the front as if we are um, uh, diseased in some way, although that is quite the thing to do at the moment uh, so well done thank you all for coming to join us in the tent here to talk about a book which is very exciting it's this book here the secret body by dan davis and this is dan davis um before we get started on all of that i should give you a few little bits of blurb if you've been in either of the two other cosmic shambles events this afternoon you'll have heard all this so sorry for saying it again um this is obviously a cosmic shambles network event we have been taking over this tent for this afternoon and it will become a science shambles podcast later so if you like what you've heard you can look online and uh in a week or two all of the interviews we've done this afternoon will go out as podcasts um we also have lots of events. We, there are definitely more online at the moment. So 10 a.m. every Sunday, for example, we have Science Shambles. So that's me and Robin Ince talking. I'm Helen Chersky, by the way. Hello. Um, it's me and Robin talking about science with two guests answering the questions that people have sent in. So that's online every Sunday. And then there's lots of other events, mostly online at the moment. But we are starting to do live events again. So all of the information about all of that is on the Cosmic Shambles Network. Um, and uh, this book and my book and lots of other books are on sale in the book thing and if you would like a signed copy I'm sure we can arrange that it's a question of tugging the right sleeve at the right time uh, and I think that is those are all the introductory bits we will have some time for audience questions towards the end so uh, after you've heard uh, some of what Dan's got to say we will have questions just be aware when that comes along you might have to um, shout quite a lot because we are not taking microphones around the audience and that kind of thing but uh, if you think of questions as you're going along do save them up and we'll be uh taking the problem you know what i am not doing well at multiple objects at the moment uh, i'm going to show you the book which has a very that's i mean you probably can't see but it's got a sort of stick person with a red head it's called the secret body now i'm going to put it on the floor uh, so i can't drop it deliberate okay Dan, so you are a professor of immunology at the University of Manchester. Uh, you've written lots of books. This is just the most recent one. Is it, very, is it published this week, next week? Uh, Last about week. About two weeks ago, I think. Quite very recent. Okay. So just to get us started, tell us a little bit about your research. What is it you do at, at the university? Oh, great. Thanks, Helen. Um, 
thanks so much for coming here, guys. So basically, um, in my lab, what we do is um, we use very uh, high-powered microscopes. So uh, these are microscopes that actually won a Nobel Prize in 2014 because they actually beat a fundamental law of physics, which we could talk about. And essentially what we do is we watch um, how the immune system uh, looks at other cells. So we literally take cells out of your blood uh, and we mix them up with cancer cells or virus-infected cells or healthy cells and we watch what happens when your immune cells uh, stick to another cell and the immune cell then has to make a decision as to whether that other cell is healthy or diseased. Uh, and then the immune cell will have to make that decision, is this other cell healthy or diseased? And if it has signs of being cancerous or infected with the virus, then the immune cell has to respond in some way. And so we visualize exactly how that process uh, happens. Uh, so I've been doing that kind of work for about uh, 20 years. And, um, and so, yeah, along the way, we've discovered uh, um, various aspects of, of how that process works, uh, which essentially gives us a very molecular, like a minuscule view of exactly how your immune system recognizes signs of disease. And actually that does, not, not just my lab, that's, that's me as part of a community of tens of thousands of people around the world. Eventually that kind of understanding very directly leads to new kinds of medicines. You make um, it sound like a sort of game show where you present, you present this cell with a, the, with a test. Does it pass or fail the test? Does it, have you ever thought of turning it into a game show? One of the postdocs in my lab, so we do do quite a lot of sort of public discussion type events. One of the postdocs in my lab did do a game show once, a, a competitive festival to this one, Blue Dot, but uh, uh, which didn't run this year. So we, we can't talk about that. And yeah, it can be like a game show. I mean, I think, I think we do discover some... Uh, uh, is it useful? I could just tell you something that we discovered like very recently, perhaps, as, an, as an, uh, uh, an illustration of the kind of thing you discover just by watching immune cells interacting with other cells. So um, uh, this, is, this was a discovery um, from a PhD student from Greece in my lab, Alexandros Karapantzakis, who's just now passed his PhD for this, for this discovery. Now, what, what happens when an immune cell sticks to another cell, um, one of the receptor molecules on the surface of the immune cell uh, that recognizes that another cell carries some sign of disease, it gets chopped off the immune cell once it's recognized the disease, the, the disease cell. Now that seems a bit counterintuitive. So that means an immune cell has, a, has this receptor that locks onto another cell saying that, that that cell is disease, but then the immune cell loses that receptor. So the immune cell might, for example, kill the disease cell, but then it loses its receptor that's able to, to detect that sign of disease. And people thought, well, that must be part of the idea that your immune system has to switch off its activity after some time. And you know that because when you're infected with a flu virus, for example, your, your body goes into a heightened state of dealing with that virus, but then after some time, your immune system has to switch off because you have to come back to your normal resting state. You don't want to be in that heightened state of activity. So your immune system does have lots of ways of switching itself off as well as switching itself on, of course. So people thought immune cell losing its receptor to see disease 
would be part of the immune system switching off. And in fact, um, uh, small companies were trying to find ways for immune cells to keep hold of that receptor for longer so that you would be better able to keep recognizing the diseased cells that might be in your body. However, just by watching what happened, we saw that when an immune cell sticks to a, a cell that shows some sign of disease, like a cancerous cell, then in fact, the immune cell will stick to the cell, recognize that it's cancerous, it then sends over these toxic molecules to kill that cancer cell, and then it has to chop off at its surface the receptor molecules that saw the cancer so that the immune cell could detach itself from the cancer cell and then go and attack another cell. So in fact, losing those receptor molecules that could detect the cancer wasn't really part of the immune system switching off. It was actually important for boosting the immune response because it would lose those molecules so that it could detach from the cancer cell and then go and stick onto another cancer cell and kill that one. So losing the molecules was, is, is able to help the immune system go from one cell to another to another to another. Now, uh, uh, in, so instead of um, making a reagent, the, a, a, a medicine that keeps that receptor, in fact, um, this Greek PhD student in my lab found um, a way of making that, that whole process happen more efficiently to make the immune, to make the receptor that sees a diseased cell, make that get chopped off more efficiently to allow the detachment to happen faster, and then you could get immune cells killing lots of cells in sequence more efficiently. Uh, so that's You've got that. a situation here that's almost like, you know, there are, there are lizards, I think, that if a predator gets hold of their tail, they'll, they'll, they'll drop their tail off and the lizard can run off. Yeah. The tail gets left behind and the lizard grows a new tail, and then if another predator gets it, I'm not sure if they can lose their tails twice. There's probably a biologist in the audience that can tell me. But the point is that it, your... your clamping mechanism is left behind so that your active your active warrior can go back into the battlefield yeah that's exactly that's exactly uh, uh, right Helen yeah so that allows the immune system to detect lots of and 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 what's quite exciting about that to me is that uh, well the the, the 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 story I think is is hopefully quite exciting but also it's the process it's the fact that we didn't, we didn't have a hypothesis. I mean, you, 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 read, you, you think about science as you have to have a, an idea and you design an experiment to test that idea and then you look at the results and was your idea right? And that is true. Science does, a lot of science does have to work like that. You, know, you don't want a clinical trial that's just haphazard. You have to have a, a very clear plan. But in the kind of research I just described, which is, which is using microscopes to watch what happens, we did not have any hypothesis. We are just watching exactly what happens when immune cells bump around and de detect cancer cells or virus-infected cells, and then we stumble across uh, something that we then think is an idea. And then it's true that it then takes, then you have to design experiments to test that idea very specifically. But, but using microscopes is, is inherently explorative. Um, well, let's talk about the book. Let's use it because it's a good example. So the, the book um, talks about actually the stories of things happening. So you talk, about, you talk about discovery science a lot, and I think you make a point at some point that um, there's a lot of very major discoveries that have come from quite mundane things. You know, there's this kind of pool of things that scientists are studying all the time, and you don't know which one of them is going to open the door to something bigger. So what was it that drew you to those stories? Because there's lots of ways of telling science, but you, you specifically in this book are telling the stories of the scientists, like the story you just told us, how they got there, who they were, where they went wrong along the way. Like, why tell science like that? 
Yeah, I mean, there are several ways of answering that. I, I actually think it's quite important that, um, you know, the, the, the pandemic has shown us that science is important and to understand things that happen, we need to really engage deeply with not just the science, but how the science works. You know, like we've all become aware of, you know, do I wear a mask or not wear a mask? And, and, and the science had to progress through that journey and we had to go with it. So telling the story of how science happens to me is, is actually quite fundamentally important. And, and that's what you and Cosmic Shambles obviously do a huge amount towards uh, uh, making everyone aware of how science works. But for me, it's also about, um, it, is, it, is, it is a complex journey in how anything was discovered. Uh, and, and so in terms of the microscope experiment that I just told you about, that has its roots actually right back to the 1960s and 70s with a Japanese scientist, Osama Shimomura, who was interested in something completely different. He wasn't interested in looking at the immune system or cancer. He was interested in jellyfish. Uh, and he was uh, working... Uh, he, he, used to, he, he used to go with his family um, to some islands about 12 miles off Seattle and, and, and uh, pick up jellyfish with nets. Uh, and um, and I, he, he's now since passed away, and I spoke to his daughter about their experience, and she told me, you know, it was, it, yeah, as a young kid, it was fun to collect jellyfish in nets. People would ask them, you know, why are you collecting all these jellyfish? How do you cook them? But they weren't going to eat them. They were, they were what he was, Osama Shimura was interested in was how do uh, sea creatures communicate with each other? Or in fact, how do any creatures communicate through changes in color? Um, and he was in, the, these particular jellyfish they were catching, have a green glowing uh, ring at the, you know, your jellyfish would be like a dome shape and the ring at the bottom of the dome could, could have cells that glow green. And he was interested in how, how does that happen? How do these jellyfish have this green glow? So he was catching jellyfish, isolating the cells, and then he discovered that two particular protein molecules are important in making those cells glow green. Um, and then it turns out, not, you know, so... Eventually, he's going to win a Nobel Prize, by the way. It doesn't feel like he might do just catching jellyfish and looking at cells. Uh, but then the story... See, what's, what's exciting to me is how these stories move across continents between people and very different kinds of people as well. Uh, and so the story jumps from there to 1989 when Martin Chalfie was sitting in a lecture theatre and he just heard someone talk about this green glowing protein from jellyfish and suddenly a light bulb uh, you know, moment in his mind was, well, I, I wonder if I could use that green glowing protein from jellyfish to make things glow green in, in other living animals. Uh, and, and then I could, might be able to watch where things are in other living creatures. And so that, that was before the internet, so he didn't, you couldn't just Google, well, where's this green glowing protein? So he starts phoning people. One of the persons he, he phones is a guy called Doug Prasher. Um, and Doug says, yeah, I'm going to isolate the gene in the jellyfish for that green glowing molecule, the green glowing protein. They sort of lost touch. Uh, a bit later, uh, Martin Chalfie, the New York professor, suddenly says, oh, uh, what happened to that green protein? He looks it up. Oh, there is a paper on it. Doug did isolate the gene. He gets back in touch with Doug. Hey, you've got the gene from jellyfish that makes a green glowing protein. Martin, the, the Doug then sends the gene 
uh, over to Martin in New York. Martin asks uh, uh, um, two students in his lab, uh, and they make a green glowing bacteria. At first, the student uh, couldn't see the green glowing bacteria in the microscope, but she thought maybe the microscope wasn't that good. So she tried out a, a microscope in a lab next door, and the, the, there was green glowing bacteria. And another we probably don't want to give away all of your book here. We do, we do. <laughs> no. But I mean, the point is that these are very disparate areas. You have someone studying jellyfish, you have people who are interested in genetics, you have people who have a particular problem to solve, which is how do we label parts of cells? How do we label bits in biology so that they glow when we can find them? And it takes all of those to make a discovery which later wins the Nobel Prize. So this idea of this kind of ivory-towered scientist, you know, isolated you know, spending hours in their microscopes, although they all probably did that, you all probably do that. Um, I didn't, I was, I chose a discipline which did not involve looking down microscopes, that was deliberate. Um, so, but, um, it, I mean, it's not this, we're told the story of the lone genius, right? Louis Pasteur invented a thing. You know, there are these stories in history which are basically one person, almost always male, who discovered a thing and then the world went hurrah. And that's not the way it happens. That's, that's kind of the point here, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a mixture of things because there, there is geniuses in it sort of as well. So it's true that things move around and progress, uh, but actually there were some moments where uh, people do have uh, ideas that are literally amazing and, and, and it's hard to... Uh, so, um, you know, once that green glowing protein makes cells go green, it was, a, it, was, it, was a, it was a guy, Eric Betzig, for example, who was out rolling. Uh, uh, he, didn't have a, he, was, he didn't have a job. Uh, he'd worked previously in Bell Labs. He did have an epiphany idea of how to make a new kind of microscope. And, 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 and the way that that microscope works that beats a fundamental law of physics is quite amazing to me. It's still amazing, even though I've been using it for like 10 years. So there are, I do think there are um, moments of... I mean, it depends what you mean. I mean, genius is a tricky word. We all have our own opinion on what that means. But there are stories of people. And it, and it is true that it was mostly men, as you say. But uh, I, um, I think, I think, as you, that, that, I think that, that depends on what time. I think if you look right now, unquestionably, uh, all kinds of people, are, they, you know, women are equally uh, involved in the science. And in fact, many of the stories I write about, for example, the Human Cell Atlas is a wonderful, very exciting realm of science, which is led by... Uh, pretty much all women, or a lot of women who are involved in it. Well, we'll come to that, but let's so just talk about some of the bigger themes of the book are not just the stories of science, and, and it's split into these six um, sort of aspects of the human body that you talk about, and you talk about the discoveries that go into it. But the point is that these discoveries have changed the way we view those systems. That, you know, in school, it's a sort of, you know, GCSE biology, whatever, you get this picture of a human, and it's got some kidneys over here, and some lungs up there, and a heart in there. And, and these are all sort of separate objects inside the human body. And, and what you're talking about in the book, it seems, is that actually as we discover more of the details of how things work, it's not, it's not just that the collaboration is between the scientists, it's that we're learning that the, the body is a collaboration, that these separate systems are not as separate as perhaps we were all taught in school. So tell us a little bit about systems thinking when it comes to the body. So the, the, the idea that everything is so interconnected actually really works at many different levels. So, for example, we all have a rough idea of what a cell is, like a sort of schematic, a sort of diagram, a, a big circle with some stuff in it that you might have picked up from school. And in fact, cells are continuously exchanging um, even genetic material, actually, with each other. So even, even at something as basic as that does get, does get 
quite messy once you dig further and further into the details. Um, in terms of the, 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 the sort of systems you're thinking about, even, even the immune system and the nervous system, you know, we, we tend to think, we, we obviously have some understanding of what the immune system is and what the nervous system is, and yet they're deeply entwined with each other. And, and you do know that because, for example, when you, when you do have a fever, you know that your immune system is, is dealing with some kind of infection, but you also know it makes you feel very, very different. And so the, 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 the proteins that immune cells use to communicate with each other also have an impact on the nervous system, and of course that affects your body temperature. So everything is really deeply uh, interconnected, um, yeah, in, many, in all different levels. And um, one of the things that comes out, you know, as you dig more, you down and down and down into the detail, you know, you've got microscopes, you can watch what these cells are doing, you can watch how they send messages and how they link up and break apart and, you know, kill themselves or other cells. Um, and, and it's complicated, right? And we live in an age where there's this pressure to be perfect, like, you know, sort of what's normal? Like, so everyone's okay, so your cells do this and my cells do that. Well, which of us is right? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I do think this is um, uh, a really important issue about, about how you define what, what is normal and what not. I mean, we're all used to the idea of the BMI index, which has some, uh, you know, it categorizes people as being, you know, uh, uh, a healthy weight or, or, or overweight or obese. And that, that label you might, it is sort of useful in the sense that, it, you know, if you're more likely to uh, uh, get type 2 diabetes when you're older, for example, if you're, if you're obese, but so, that, so you might want to do something about that. But also the label itself does carry uh, a baggage to it or a weight to it because society for some reason tends to give thinner people some level of superiority, basically. So, so the labels that we put on people um, are quite profound and, and, and really important and it's crucial we discuss that and we're just at the tip of the iceberg of what that's going to be because the deeper and deeper you dig into what the human body really is, um, the more and more uh, classifications you can have of how, how your life is going to pan out um, and that becomes uh, an incredibly, that there's, there's no question that not, not maybe not tomorrow, but there's no question that in, in, in some time in the future, there's going to be any number of ways in which you could analyze what your body is doing right now and what the probabilities and risks are for you developing any number of different diseases in the future. And being prepared to deal with that is really important and one of the reasons I really wanted to write the book, actually. Well, one of the, the things that comes out is that the, there's no, I think there's a phrase somewhere, I can't remember, but it's something like there's no ideal genetic heritage, that humans are different and actually that's quite useful because you need all that variety somewhere and there's no, there's no right or wrong this side. It's not that one is better and one is worse. And this becomes particularly relevant when we're talking, I mean, you can sort of see it, we're on the edge of it now where... Um, there's a lot of discussion about genetics and nervousness about genetics, and then there have been examples where a scientist has tried to modify the genetics of an embryo. But the question, like you can't modify something without making the presumption that you're kind of making it better somehow, because that's why you're doing it. So there has to be a judgment. So there's a lot of danger in that, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and what, so one of the uh, pieces I, I write about is I, I talk to... Um, you know, a couple who are deaf, for example, and and they would not want to rule out uh, their children being deaf by, for example, selecting an embryo that you know they, they they see their deafness as part of themselves, and it's not 
anything that they would want to specifically rule out. So uh, in, in their children, as, uh, if, if it was possible that you could do that through a genetic manipulation. So it's really important that we do understand what uh, and embrace all of human diversity. And that there are really um, very good examples of why that's important uh, uh, on, a, on a very fundamental level. It's not just a poetic thing that we should maintain human diversity. And so, for example, um, uh, in, in, in fact, it, it comes down to our immune system. So the, the genes that vary the most between uh, me and Helen, everyone in this room, is, in this tent, is, is not hair color, eye color, skin color, or anything like that. The genes that vary the most are in our immune system genes. And, and that is not just a, a poetic thing. That's, that's vital to how our species uh, uh, is set up and that's because so for example if, you, if, if Helen was infected with a flu virus uh, and I was infected with the same flu virus she might recover in say three days and I might recover in four days and one of the reasons for that would be the different versions of immune system genes that Helen has inherited compared to me and that would and that uh, as, as well as other things like the history of your previous infections but if if it's not that Helen has, would have better immune system genes than me, because if we were infected with a different flu virus, I might get infected uh, and then uh, get better in three days, and she might then take four days to get better. So there's no, uh, it's, it's just that we each respond differently to different kinds of infections, in part because of our immune system genes, but overall, there's no better or worse set of those genes. And there's really specific examples. So if you're infected with HIV, then the time it takes to develop AIDS correlates very precisely with the versions of immune system genes you've inherited. So some genes that you might have inherited would mean that you are infected with HIV, but you actually develop the disease AIDS much later. But those same versions of those genes that help you with HIV are actually making you more susceptible to getting an autoimmune disease. So there's no, you know, it's really a crucial message to me uh, that, that it's really important that there's no uh, uh, ideal set of immune genes. In fact, the diversity is what is really important to help us as a species uh, survive against all kinds of infections. And in fact, it doesn't even work at the level of species. It also works at the level of individual because you've each inherited more than one copy of these immune system genes. So you, there's a diversity even within you. So uh, that's a subtle point, but it's really profound. That the, the, the diverse, our genetic diversity is really, really fundamental to who we are as a, as a species. And you talk in the book about um, these different techniques, not just changing, it's not just more and more granular information. Now, you can look inside the cell, you can look inside the cell on a Tuesday, you can look inside the cell on a Tuesday when it's raining. But you, you, it actually, they, they bring a different perspective on the entire human body. So it's not just we know more and more and more detail about the same things. It's, it's actually changing the way we see a human. So talk to us a little bit about that. So I, I think that there are several ways of, of how it, changes us. I think, just to put it in, you know, I really strongly believe that uh, science doesn't, isn't just a thing that's sort of uh, separate from us of how we feel. It's really, science really provides the framework of, of how, you, how we think about ourselves. You know, at one point in history, we, we would put a, an illness down to an imbalance of the four humours, right? The sort of uh, bile levels are too high or, or whatever. And, but w it's impossible for us to relate to that idea. But people did. People would actually feel that. And you can't, we can't feel that now. The list of the four humours... Uh Bile's one of them, right? Yeah. What were the others? I don't know. So ancient, the ancient world. 
Yeah. There is fluids inside you. Exactly. You, these, so if they these, got out of balance, then you felt ill. Exactly. So there are these four. So we can't feel like that anymore. Uh, and now, now, of course, we know about germs, but we know about some diseases that are, that are not just germs. So cancer, for example, we know that um, cancer is really um, uh, an out-of-control division of your own body's cells. And we know that some things that cause cancer include, for example, sunlight. So now the feeling of sunlight on your skin is different because you know that sunlight feels nice, it's good, but also it can cause cancer. So you. So all of you pumpkin. sitting in a tent in the dark while everyone else is partying out in the sunshine, you can feel differently about it because of science. Well yeah, done. So I'm science sure you're wearing really, sunscreen. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so science really does frame how you feel about what you are. And one of the ways that um, that's going to explode is, is from, so, you know, in my book, I talk about these different levels of, of things that are, that, that, are, that are taking off in our understanding of the body, the microbiome, the brain. One of them we just, we sort of very briefly mentioned is the human cell atlas. And this is the idea that we're going to map what exactly what every cell in your body is doing, the 37 trillion cells of the human body. We're going just say that number again, because this is the number of cells in the human body, and it's an impressive number. So just say that number again. So how many cells are there in the human body? 37 trillion. I don't even know how many zeros it is, really. Right, 37 trillion cells are in the human body, and we're going to work out what they all do. Um, and so that is going to... First of all, um, maybe we need to explain what, what, what that actually means. I so, you know, you obviously know that a ner there's a nerve cell, there's an immune cell, there's a red blood cell, there's, there's a kidney cell, there's a, a muscle cell, right? Um, and, and so to some approximation, there are these types of cells in the body that you'll be familiar with. But in, and, and the way that every cell in your body has the same set of genes, the 20,000 or so genes that make up you, and each cell becomes what it is by turning on just a subset of those 20,000 genes. Um, so, so, a red so they all have the full recipe book, but they're only making one recipe. Perfect. So every cell has the full recipe book and they just turn on some of the genes. So a red blood cell will turn on the genes that are especially important for making hemoglobin to carry oxygen around the body. That's what a red blood cell does. But every, even, even if you looked at all the, all the nerve cells in your body, to an extent, every, every cell has its own uniqueness because they'll all, all the cells of a certain type will, will turn on the, the genes out of that whole list to make that cell do what it does, but they'll still, make, they'll still do it to a different extent. So they, they, they'll might turn a whole bunch of genes, but they'll make more, more activity of one gene than another gene. And in, in the end, every single cell has its whole uniqueness, right? So now we need to map what, what is what, to what extent is all the 37 trillion cells turning on the genes of your body so that we can identify very, very precisely exactly what every cell is, how, which of the genes it's turned on, how active each gene is, which in turn means what, is, what exactly is that cell doing for every single cell in your body. It sounds like this is, how long is this going to take? This sounds like a big job. It's, it's, an, it's an enormous uh, uh, enterprise, and it was, it's around 2014 that people started talking about it. 2016 was the first meeting of the Human Cell Atlas. It's called the Human Cell Atlas Project, and meetings have happened. It's, a, it's, it's an enormously inclusive endeavor because there are groups literally all over the world uh, in every continent working on this to work out what, what the cells do. But let me just, just, just give you a flavor of where that's going. That, that we've already discovered new cells. So, you know, 
400 years ago or so, you, you could discover a new cell just by looking, looking at stuff with a microscope. Uh, Leeuwenhoek famously discovered sperm by looking at a liquid uh, with his primitive because microscope. Because for those of you who don't know the history of microscopy, what happened was microscopes were invented and a bloke looked at his own sperm. It, it was pretty much like that was that was how long it took. <laughs> so <laughs> what a surprise! <laughs> so now we discover new cells still, but not in that way. The, the way we the, I'm going to give give specific example. So. Um, uh, what we've just said that the, every cell has the same recipe, all the 20,000 genes, but it turns on different sets of those genes to make a particular cell, right? Now, what happens is you, you take the genes that it turns on. Let, let's just say a cell has only two genes, to make it simple, A and B. And we're going to, it turns on either A or B or both or none of those two genes. What all we have to do is make those turning on the genes make that into coordinates on a graph. So you have B and A and you'll just plot, is the cell got B on an A and then you put a dot, that whether it's turned on those genes becomes a spot on a graph, right? So you make, has it turned on that gene that becomes its coordinate on a plot. So you get a cluster of dots in all the cells that have turned on A and B, and you've got a cluster of dots with all the cells that have not turned on either A or B, right? That is, that is the principle. And you do that for 20,000 genes. I can't do a graph, but a computer does it in the same way. And now you get clusters of dots defining groups of cells that are doing a similar thing. They've all turned on the same sorts of bunch of genes, right? So you get a bunch of cells in, in, in this imaginary 20,000 graph axes, right? A bunch of dots that signify all of these cells are, are turning on a similar set of genes. And then you'll say that, oh, right, those genes, uh, those, those cells, all those dots there, well, I know those. Those are like the, the immune cells I've been working on for the last 20 years. I know, wait a minute, there's a, there's a cluster of dots over here. So a bunch of cells seem to be turning on a bunch of genes and I have no idea what those cells are. And that's how you discover a new type of cell in the human body. So that is, right now, that is, that is how new cells are being discovered. And to give you just one example, an analysis of the trachea, which is the windpipe, so it's from your, from your throat down to your lungs. Uh, scientists, uh, uh, um, a study co-led by Aviv Regev, an Israeli scientist working in the USA, discovered uh, a new type of cell in the trachea, in the, in, in the, she did it in mice first, then in humans. And that new type of cell, so it's a cell that's never been identified before, and it's First of all, that's just wonderful, but also it's medically important because that cell that she discovered seems to be one of the genes that it's using that helps define it as a new cell is the exact gene that is really important in cystic fibrosis. So that means that the new cell that that team discovered in the trachea Working out what that cell really does is now important perhaps for trying to understand how the disease cystic fibrosis works. That is how revolutionary the Human Cell Atlas Project is. So as well as, as, well as being scientifically amazing that we're going to work out what the 37 trillion cells do, it allows us to discover entirely new cells in the human body. So well, let's move on to what we do with this information because there's always like the aim of a scientist, I have it, you have it, 
all scientists have it. It's like they just want to know. The next, there's always another question. We just want to answer the next question. But as far as society goes, you know, there's a limit to what everyone can hold in their heads, right? I can't hold all of art and culture in my heads. I know a bit more about science than I do about art history. Well, I know quite a lot more because I know very little about art history. I do try. Um, but the point is that everyone can't know everything. So the, can't, the point of finding out more information can't just be to tell everyone everything. So then we have this question of knowledge becoming useful because it helps make a decision. And then we have the question of who decides what research gets done. And you have a section in the book on embryos, which is um, a sensitive topic for, for many people. And you know, embryos uh, from animals and humans can be kept alive in the lab for a certain length of time because you can learn things. You can learn useful things that help you make good decisions. But who, how does it work? As we're finding out more and more and more information, is it only ever the scientists who get to decide whether we do this experiment? Or do the public ever get to decide? I mean, this is a, because once you have a piece of knowledge, you can't unknow it, or at least not very easily. So who, how, who decides what we find out? Who should decide? Yeah, so I, I mean, this is, this is really important, Helen, so thanks. So it's, it's true that uh, embryo science is a particularly good example of, of where we all need to engage in working out what we should and shouldn't do. Um, and, and when you say who gets to decide, it's an incredibly uh, difficult issue. So, for, so we all know that, so you know, there, there, there was, um, there's generally the sense that we should not edit the genes of human embryos. And yet, of course, um, as many of you know, there is a, a, a Chinese scientist, He Jianqi, who, Jianqi, who did uh, so, I mean, it hasn't been formally proven, but, but it's highly feasible that, that he did edit the genes of a human embryo and it led to twins being born with edited human genes. So these things are not the realm of science fiction. These are, these are things that we do need to engage with. And, and, and I, do, I do think it's really hard because even if we all agreed on a set of principles amongst us in this tent right now, it's not it's really hard to enforce. There, there, there was already essentially a, 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 a global moratorium, or, or at least amongst the scientists, it was clear that we should not be editing uh, human embryos. In, in, not for the very, you know, even for the reason that it's not really proven to be safe at all. Um, and, and yet, of course, one scientist went ahead to do that. So it's really hard to enforce rules. Right now, you can only grow an embryo out of, um, in a lab dish, a human embryo, for 14 days. Um, uh, and so research can be done on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an egg and fertilized egg and sperm, watch it, watch it developing for 14 days, and then... Um, and it's important to say permission would have to have been given. Yes, of course. By... And, and, and yeah, the, 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 I mean, I don't do that kind of research, but the, but the research, it does involve a lot of uh, uh, administrative work to be able to do that kind of research. But then after 14, but it's also true that, that technically you probably keep a human embryo growing longer. And then the question is, well, where do we draw the line? Um, and so these are very, very difficult issues to, to think about. And, and I think what, but I think over, over and above that, it's also hard to think about how, how you would enforce any rule like that or any of these rules because people, in labs, you know, they're not being, people, we've already had examples where rogue, they're not rogue scientists in the sense that they were doing something 
kind of too wacky. I mean, I mean, the the the, the guy, the the scientist from China who did edit um, human embryos was not um, a sort of cowboy scientist just just trying something. You know, he 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 actually had quite a, a solid uh, education, quite a good pedigree of working in, in in other labs, and then decided it was important for him to do this. And 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 it's a very very thorny issue. One of one of the issues I discussed in the book is, of course, when IVF uh, in vitro fertilization was first done, it was there were scientists saying, you know, this is unbelievably uh, uh, out, outrageous, and and we we shouldn't even be trying it. It's very risky. And now of now of course. Uh, in, vi in vitro fertilization is, is part of the fabric of, of our society. Um, and so it I is a very, a very difficult thing. that sort of one to two, one, what is it one or two percent of all humans born now are born with the help of IVF. So it's not, it's not a fringe thing. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's very, very uh, common. Exactly. So, so these issues are very, very difficult. And, and I think uh, and my role uh, as a scientist, and, and maybe Helen's too uh, as well, I don't, I don't want to speak for her, but it, it, it's, it's to kind of open up the discussion. I don't think I have the answers. I, I, it's not that I think it's not that I'm here to say we we should definitely stop embryos at seven days or 21 days or 14 I don't have the answer it's not that to me it what I, what I think my job is is to tell you how we got here this is the site this is the journey we've taken this is where we're at this is what we know this is what we don't know and now we kind of just need now we need to discuss that and decide what we're going to do with the information uh, uh, and if we don't do that then then who is going to make these decisions as you just asked me I mean we don't we don't want I, I, I wouldn't want us. I wouldn't want decisions to be made that, as as a society, you we all weren't fully aware of where this was coming from and what the decisions are. Because I, I really believe this is this will affect you. This will affect. This will certainly affect your children and grandchildren, and I think it will affect us in ways you can't actually imagine. One, one well, of let's, the let's move on to sorry, so just to take the, the question of who decides is that to, on a more personal point of view. You know, there started to be discussion of personalised medicine, and this is something that perhaps genetics opens up, and then perhaps being able to count what kind of cells are in your blood on any given day opens up. So when I mean personalised medicine, first of all, perhaps tell us what it is, but then with this, with the with the discoveries that are being made, how feasible is it, and does it come with any dangers? Yeah, so, so there's, there's no question that... Uh, so personalised medicine is this idea that instead of us all taking the exact same medicine for a particular type of illness, it will be much more tailored to you personally uh, in, in some way. And so that's already in play for a lot of uh, illnesses. Cancer is actually a really good example where it's clear that uh, certain types of therapy work better or worse for different kinds of people depending on their, their, their genes as well as other things about their cancer. And so personalized medicine is already here, but it's going to go, uh, uh, I think it's going, you know, the direction of travel is that that's going to go to a whole new uh, level. So for example, there's one of the recent uh, ideas is that an analysis of your gut microbiome, which is the back, an analysis of the types of bacteria in your feces or your poo, can signify whether a particular type of immune therapy is going to work for your cancer or not. So that's just an example of, of, whether, of, of how this can develop much more than it does now. So personalized medicine is, is here with us. And then I think it's going to you know, how much of that do you want to know in advance? So right now, you might have like an Apple Watch that tells you some few metrics about yourself. Uh, but I think in the future, there's no question that that's going to get 
incredibly more complicated, and then it will come down to what do you want to know about yourself? How much do you, if you were, if you knew that you had a one in 20 chance of developing cancer in the next four years, and you could act on it, but it's also true that the way in which you act on it may have some risks involved, if it was surgery or some medicine, what would you do about it? Or what if it wasn't one in 20? What if it was like you had a one in five chance in the next 10 years? You know, all it's of also these. It's a question of whether you want to know, right? I mean, the, I think there's, I can't remember, there are some cancers where, well, there are growths or I think prostate cancer might be one of them where they say that, you know, it can be there not doing anything and you could live a happy life and never know it was there and you'd be totally fine and you would never know the difference. But if you could diagnose every tiny thing, then you get an email or a thing one day because someone's done some screening and it says, you have cancer. But maybe, sorry, that wasn't meant to be accusatory. But, um, you know, but so, so there are then issues about do we want, how much do we want to know? Because if you go looking in a system as complicated as this, if you go looking, you're always going to find something that's gone wrong, right? Yeah, so I, I think that's it. So as, as we dig deeper into what the body is, as we work out what 37 trillion cells do, as we work out what the bacteria are in your, in your intestine, as you work out how the brain works, the, an, an overarching question becomes, how much do you want to know about yourself? And, and I, I think that in, uh, not tomorrow, but at some point in the future, we're going to be uh, um, overwhelmed with, with, with the possibility of obtaining information about ourselves. Right now, you could get your gene sequenced. You know, 23andMe and these other companies do that kind of thing for you if you want to know. And that is, I strongly believe that's the tip of the iceberg, that there's, there's an enormous amount of information that could be analyzed about each of us individually. And we personally will have to now decide how much do we want to know about ourselves. Well, that's an interesting other can of worms that we probably shouldn't go into. But just, you know, these, these projects like 23andMe, they do a limited thing and they make assumptions on a limited thing. And it's never clear where the limits are, I think. So there's a very, you know, there's a discussion in the genetics community about, you know, they do test for some things, but it's a small subset of all the possible things and they make inferences. And it, there's a limit to what they can say, but that's not always what people hear. So already we have a difficulty with this. Yes, so it's true. So already right now, um, some of the information you might get from some an, an analysis like that might be provided by some uh, company, it's very very hard to act on that information, and it, and perhaps and perhaps it's true as well that the information isn't very clearly uh, told to you. If you've you know, it's very it's difficult even for experts to grapple with the idea that. You know, right now, we can't even predict exactly uh, the height of a person from their genes, right? So there are, there, it is difficult to analyze genetic information in, in, a, in, a, in a clear way about physical, uh, about the features of a person. But, but the, the deeper we dig into these things, the more it is going to happen. So we're nearly out of time, but I want to finish with two questions, and I'm going to tell you them both, but I'm also going to decide which one goes first. And so the two questions are, so in this new world, we're finding out there's, the body is more complicated than we ever imagined. We know and we are going to know more about it than ever before. First of all, what do doctors and medical schools need to know about this? Like, how should we be training our doctors to deal with it? And secondly, how should we think about ourselves in this new world? So let's start with the doctors. If you could... If you're looking at this world of all this potential, but huge complication, do we need to train our doctors differently? Or do we all, does everyone just have to become more and more specialized? Or do we just stumble along because it's just big and complicated and we're doing our best? 
I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want to suggest to, I'm not a medical doctor myself, so I wouldn't want to suggest that, that, that the medical profession needs to do something different because I'm not really immersed in that world. I'm immersed in, in the science of it all. But uh, I, as we go forward, there are, there are a couple of things that I think is important. One is that, that the a medical doctor um, or at some level a person might need more than a five-minute chat to think about what their, what their situation is because it is getting more and more complicated and whether that, how that happens is hard to know. And the other issue is that the cost of it all is potentially an existential crisis for the NHS. Right now, we do talk about the, the difficulties in funding the NHS uh, for, for what it does, but, but the complexity of new medicines and personalising medicines and making... Uh, and you know, if it's true that, for example, analysing a person's microbiome could inform them about what type of diet is especially good for them, and that was proven to be beneficial in 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 averting many diseases, then are we going to pay for that under the NHS? So I do. I, I, as well as that, there are complicated new kinds of medicine. So you know, even in my own lab, we're involved with creating different kinds of antibodies. It's, it's, uh, it's something I wrote about in New Scientist a couple of weeks ago, and and that. They are inherently expensive to produce, and you know how are we going to pay for that within the NHS? So, so, so there are there are issues for the for the medical profession in terms of how we think about it ourselves. Personally, I think that is up to you, right? That that's not for me to dictate to you how to think about uh, personalised medicine. How much do you want to know about yourself? All all I can do is tell you, you know, this is this is this is how we've got to this place where we could feasibly analyse your body in this particular way and tell you what it what it means to have, you know, a one in five chance over the next five years of getting some particular. This is how we get to that state. And now, you know, understanding that you you personally will have to think about what you want to do with it. I, I think that it, it, it's it's like right now, it's it's like um, uh, Hertz at the end of the 19th century discovered a new way to produce uh, electromagnetic waves which were, so light is, a, is, a, is an electromagnetic wave and he managed to produce x-rays and radio waves which are the waves we can't see. He died at age 36 and of course he could never have predicted that his research would lead to the internet and the TV. And I think that we're like that in biology. That it's quite hard for me to tell you in, in any sort of predictive way what it's going to be like, you know, 100 years from now. But what I do think is that it's an explosive moment. It's like the discovery of X-rays and radio waves that led to the internet and the TV. I don't know where it's going to be in 100 years from now. But I'm sure we're going to look back at this moment and think this is when it all began. This is a this is an explosive moment in understanding the human body. Where we get to, I'm not quite sure. Well, it's a lovely place to finish. And also, as you will see, if you read Dan's book, the, what you can do to start off your journey in thinking about all of this is just learn the stories and learn that we are all, each of us, like far more interesting and complex than uh, people had imagined in the past. And I think that is a wonderful thing. So I do encourage you to uh, find this book. It is The Secret Body. Uh, so Daniel Davis um, here is your formal name. But anyway, so that is all we have time for. This was the Cosmic Shambles Network. Uh, do look up CosmicShambles.com. We do lots of events like this. I hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And to finish off, please join me in thanking our fabulous guest, Dan Davis. And thank you, Helen. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks for listening. Dan's book, Secret Body, is out now. Get a copy from your local independent bookshop if you can or wherever else you get your books. Don't forget patreon.com slash bookshambles to subscribe and support the podcast. Cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons for the upcoming nine lessons shows in December. Have a great week. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode with Robin and Josie. Until then, take care and bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.